Oh, assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope and we just sit back and have a conversation on how you can live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Y'all, today, our guest is a speaker. Our guest is a writer, uh, former K through twelve educator, and you know when you listen to this podcast, I want you to listen first. Then I want you to go online. I want you to check out her talks. I want you to check out the, her on PB at PBS. I don't know why I said P, PBIS, and I know why because I'm in education. Uh, but I want you to check her out, but listen to the podcast first because the our next guest is really dope. And I want to have her on uh, because uh, she came on my radar uh, via Twitter. Twitter's going to forever uh, be Twitter. And w- just watching what come down, her feed has been interesting. And then she dropped, she dropped people. She dropped that blog post. I was like, oh, is this where we are now? And it was just so uh, such an awesome read. And so we're definitely going to be talking about that and the work uh, that she is doing now. So for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, again, I'd like to introduce my guest to y'all, uh, Annie Tan. And Annie, I want to thank you first for coming on the show and willing to share your story and your journey. And will you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks, Will, um, Dr. Will, for that lovely introduction. Uh, yeah, so I am, my name's Annie Tan. Uh, I'm currently a program manager for a not-for-profit, so we'll talk about that uh, in a sec, probably. Um, but yeah, I uh, am a former special education teacher, uh, elementary, mostly, um, and uh, I was born and raised in Chinatown in Manhattan, always wanted to be a teacher, Um taught as a special education teacher for over a decade um, and also fought for special education rights, Asian American rights and like budgets and then COVID and we'll talk about it. But I really fought for COVID safety uh, in the height of the 2020-21 school year and beyond. Um, And then I left as Dr. Will just told us all. Oh yeah, people go, hey. Got to read it. Uh, so I'm always interested in how people got to where they are. What did you think you'd be doing when you were growing up? And how did you find yourself in K-12 through education, especially? And I don't know New York. Uh, I don't know quite, you know, it's, it's not, and I'm not saying I have these key insights uh, into the Asian American uh, community. But based upon what I have, we have, Heard me being on the outside. Asian parents uh, like to funnel their children into specific professions, uh, and I have never heard of K through twelve classroom teacher being one a top on the list. Uh, so, how did you find yourself uh, being in K through twelve? It's it's so funny, yeah. Like most kids aren't like I want to be a teacher. I I just like growing up in Chinatown, and and I'm writing a memoir right now about all this. So I've really really dug deep on like why I did certain things and all of that um so I'm a child of immigrants uh my parents don't speak English 
Um, and I'm not and will never be fluent in my parents' languages of Cantonese and Toisan. Um, and uh, as a kid, I was kind of I forced to figure out everything by myself because my parents like wouldn't be able to help me navigate this American culture um, and this American system of education. And at six years old, I just had this wonderful teacher. I mean, my kindergarten teacher was also wonderful who helped teach me English. And even before that, I um, had a speech delay when I was like two and a half. I hadn't even spoken yet. Um, and my first words were in, not in Chinese, but in English, because mm -hmm. I went to like a special education school, like a, I guess like a head start kind mm -hmm. of school for kids with speech delays. Um, so yeah, so my first words were uh, in English. No way, no way. Um, I asked my mom about this, like maybe a year and a half ago, and she asked me what no way meant because she didn't, she doesn't know English. Um, so when you grow up like that and you don't really have much guidance at home on like how to move forward, as much as your parents are trying to help you, um, the person that gave me guidance, the people that gave me guidance were my teachers. So at six, from my first grade teacher, I was like, I want to be that person, like that helps kids like me. Like I knew that from a deep core in my heart. And then second grade, my next teacher was also amazing. I was like, it just cements it. I'm going to be a teacher. So um, that was the only thing I ever wanted to be. No doctor, no lawyer. My mom was like, you could be mayor. I was like, <laughs> no, I definitely don't want to be a mayor. Um, but uh, yeah, it just never, like through college, never, ever was anything else. Um, there were there were other things in college where I was like, oh, I like I'm going to be an urban studies major to then study more like uh, just urban issues in education, because I had also always wanted to be a city teacher because, you know, immigrants come to big cities and um, I was one of them and I wanted to serve kids like me. Um, and so, you know, I learned about like this was in 2009, 2010, where I was learning about the charter school movement. And this was way before the NAACP was like, charter schools are resegregating uh, public schools, right? Um, and so I was like doing kind of like GIS mapping of like incomes and races versus like where the charter school movement was popping up in New York City. Um, I did just like a ton of research on assessments and uh, how like even the middle school admissions process here in New York City uh, you know, was not really fair for kids like me, like who was who were trying to navigate. It was like this very convoluted system where you had to put in like a code to apply to middle school. And there were all these codes that people had misput in. So they weren't applying to the middle school that they wanted. Mm -hmm. um, so things of that nature in terms of access to education too, that I was really learning uh, in college through these internships, through my education, you know, learning about Paulo Freire's banking model was like transformative. Um, and then in my urban studies major, learning about the neoliberal approach to just neoliberalism in general. And then I was like, oh, that should apply to education. And, you know, people like Lois Wiener uh, were talking about this neoliberal approach to education around 2009. But um, it really wasn't like known it wasn't like that like this movement of private donors like pushing education toward a certain space 
um, mm -hmm. was a thing yet. You know, it wasn't in the wide atmosphere yet. Um, but a lot of teachers and activists were already fighting against it. Um, so um, really being that kid of immigrants made me just curious about everything. And that led me to all those things I figured out was like learning in college um, about being a teacher, all for the purpose of being a better teacher at the end of the day. Um, and uh, even now, like I uh have never thought of a career other than teaching you know it like i i don't know what the future holds um but i can see myself going back to the classroom at some point in the future um and we can talk later about why i left teaching but uh i i thank all the teachers who stayed through covid um because we need y'all we need all of us like you know it takes a village to raise our children so um, and in my own way, I'm still doing that, but uh, I have a, sort of a different path at the moment. Mm. So you touched on it, but how did being a child of immigrants inform your teaching philosophy and practice? How, how did all of that shape you once you got into the classroom? Yeah, so I um, first, the way I got into the classroom was a little convoluted, too. Um, so. I graduated from college in 2011. Um, as we all know, there was a recession that started in 2008. Um, and so New York City public schools actually had a hiring freeze. Um, and I was elementary, so like they were never gonna hire me because uh, as we know, um, across um, K through 12 teachers, elementary educators just make the brunt of um, the teaching population. And so I wasn't gonna get a job. And so I was like, okay, how am I going to be a teacher in this recession, um, but also not have to like go to grad school and like do even more years of this and like possibly spend money because my family got no money um, and I am not gonna take out loans to go to grad school. And so uh, I saw Teach for America and I was like, oh, like special education would be a way for me to be like kind of competitive and always have a job because as a low-income kid of immigrants, it's about money and helping your family survive. Um, and so I applied to New York City and Chicago um, because I I really wanted to stay in New York to help my family, but um, Chicago, uh, I don't drive as a New Yorker. Um, so I was like, I need a city that has a transit system. And so that literally was my only consideration for Chicago. Um, when I applied and I got into the Chicago uh, program. And that's when I learned that Teach for America uh, at, at that point in 2011, two thirds of their placements were in charter schools, which I had done all this research on, right? That were resegregating schools, had high teacher turnover, uh, were creaming the crop in terms of like getting the specific students that were high achieving that they wanted, right? This is not across the board, of course, for charter schools, but these were the general trends we were finding back then. And so I was like, crap, like now I have to work at a charter school, but I was like, I'll make the most of it. Um, but this specific charter school had me teaching. Uh, so my first period class, I had a kindergartner, a first grader, four second graders, two third graders and two fourth graders all in the same room, all behind in reading. And little old me, like who had just done like a month of like summer school training on so-called special education and just had like kind of like a 
one week boot camp on what special education even was while also going to grad school at night. Um, and so that experience, uh, plus being a kid of immigrants made me realize, oh, like there's a lot more we have to fight for in classrooms in order to make them equitable. Um, I taught in Bronzeville where a lot of our kids were facing violence, um, uh, black population. Um, and, um, the parents and the kids were all great. Um, and I realized at that moment that um, I I really like had this affinity, but I, I couldn't do my job because of the sheer amount of grade levels. I had to, ba I had basically 10 preps. I had to prepare for five grade levels of reading and five grade levels of math every single day, wow. which is just absolutely wild. Um, and that was allowable in a charter school where there's no unions. Um, and I found out later through being involved with the Chicago Teachers Union and the Special Education Committee, which I eventually co-chaired, um, that that was illegal. I should not have five <laughs> grade levels of kids in one classroom. Who knew? Um, so being a kid of immigrants uh, made me very, very curious. And then I'm very open to um, scenarios. Um, and one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that I'm related to a man named Vincent Chin, who was murdered in a hate crime in 1982 Detroit, um, and whose murder and case ended up starting an Asian American movement and is the reason why Asian Americans are included in federal hate crime legislation today. Um, so I knew also that like, mass movements could make things better. Um, but in this particular case, in this charter school, I wasn't going to be able to make that difference with the little power I had, with the little education I had, um, that then uh, led me to being non-renewed from that charter school. And uh, I've written about this in uh, Julian Vasquez Highlegs' blog in the past. Um, and, um, Basically, that understanding led me to think, oh, it's not enough to just be that one teacher like Ms. Sheridan and Ms. Yee were my first and second grade teachers. It actually needs to be a systemic difference because if we don't make a systemic difference, we're going to have kids in five grade levels in one classroom like this and one little teacher not being able to make that difference for those kids. Um, and I was also figuring out at that point that I really wanted to serve kids whose second language or their next language that they were trying to learn was English like me. Um, so um, being in a monolingual school, um, I felt like the experience I had, like I, I wasn't serving the kids that I felt I wanted and needed to serve because I know the experience of trying to um, hold on to my home languages. Um, so when I went off to my next school, um, and I got my master's in special education and I was a paraprofessional before I went back to teaching. So I did the right thing this time and I did go back to grad school. Um, I ended up teaching in Little Village in Chicago where most of the kids were uh, Spanish speaking and Mexican. Um, and so I got to have like champurrados and like tamales uh, verdes every morning for breakfast. And it was pretty glorious. Um, and it uh, made me realize that like and I was also serving special education students who had like things like selective mutism, 
um, who used uh, speech devices like AAC devices to um, communicate. And so I had to learn a whole new system of special education and around languaging. Um, and that was really formative for me as a person to provide access in terms of languages um, and to really create a space where it's not just that these tools are available to communicate, but that the kids wanted to communicate and could trust that their communication was listened to. Because if you say something in the world and no one listens and no one hears you or no one respects what you're saying, then they're not going to communicate. So I also really had to build a teaching philosophy and practice that I would really listen to the kids and go after what they wanted and needed rather than what I was forcing on them, which is just a really hard space since, again, Paulo Freire's banking model and other things in educational systems means that uh, kids just aren't listened to. And ageism alongside that, right, that we have this idea that kids don't have expertise in their own experience. So it was really a learning experience, my first uh, four years of teaching um, in Chicago to really hone in and listen to the kids. And then by doing that practice, also listen to myself and what I needed. And I, I felt like I was making such a big difference uh, working with uh, kids who's, who were learning English um, and who spoke different languages at home. Um, it just is really special. And then when I uh, moved back to New York City and I moved home to be closer to my family, um, then I taught in Sunset Park where I had just um, multiple uh, cultures represented in our classroom. So we had uh, South Asian students, we had Muslim students, we had uh, Mexican and Puerto Rican and Dominican students, and we had Chinese students. Um, so I got to use my Toysan and Cantonese and my limited Mandarin to really work with those kids too. So that just made me feel so open and free to like embody that in my practice of like helping them communicate um, and I actually, I taught a lot of kids to read who never thought they would read because I listened to them. <laughs> who knew that listening to a kid and like being like, this is what you're saying. Here's the written form of what you're saying. So let's practice your actual vocabulary. And then they, they were like, oh, my words like that I'm speaking match the words on the page. And then like, then they were writing all of a sudden, like after like a year and they were shocked. And like, I always like it's funny when a kid realizes they can read for the first time it's not excitement it's not elation it is confusion um and they look at me and they're like crap I have to do the work now <laughs> you know <laughs> I have to read books I have to do other work in the class um I can't trick Miss Tan anymore that like I can't read or like I have to have my hand held um it's it's a very funny um, expression on the kids' faces when they realize, man, I have to do the work now in school. Um, yeah. That's all right. So before we get into uh, uh, talking about uh, you as a writer uh, and a speaker, uh, like many of us, you were part of uh, the profession that experienced uh, the lockdown and then when we all had to go virtual uh, and as well as when people were starting to say, 
we got to come back and yep. and coming back different schools uh school districts around the country handled that differently so for our school district we had uh some hybrid days and then we it was a situation where the elementary did something different from secondary right so we we tried to sort of come up with uh, these different ways to still provide quality schooling, but in a way that was really about protecting the students and, and their families. Uh, but some people were like, we going all in, all full back. And, and you know, we know it, it was a scary time, right? It was, you know, we, we you kept hearing all of these, these are reading about all of these people who were dying, who were getting sick and having... Uh, what is called long uh, COVID complications. Uh, and it was it was really you know it was, it was it's, yeah, hey I'm telling you it was a scary time you know you, you know we lived through we experienced it. I I really remember being at Walmart and I saw this woman like I don't know five feet from me just coughing, and I'm looking at her like are you crazy like you serious like get away from me uh, I, come on woman you dangerous out here let me doing all this uh, stuff. <laughs> Um, and so you reached the period in your time, in, in your experience, uh, during this time where you felt as though you needed to be on a different path. Yeah. So, um, in April, 2020, um, I read this obituary of this teacher in New York city named Kim Marley Wynn, uh, who passed of COVID. Um, and you know, she was, uh, writing her first book. She had taught with some friends of mine. Um, she, I had a lot of friends in the writing and uh, teaching community that knew her. Um, and, and she was an Asian American educator as well. She was doing very similar things to me where she was like, I, I'm teaching in the day. I'm, I'm doing like really good work in the classroom. And at night I'm going after my dream and writing my book. Um, and I, I hadn't even formulated in my mind yet that I was writing a book at that point. Um, but I knew that I could also die of COVID and never had writ written my book. And so that's really the genesis of me starting to write my book that I'm working on right now around not being able to speak my parents' languages and also trying to find my cousin Vincent Chin's story while also like kind of trying to be an activist teacher in his like legacy, right? Um, as a family member. Um, and so I had done a lot of storytelling like after Trump was elected. So I've been on like the Moth Radio Hour um, and things of that nature. So I had already amassed maybe about like 20 stories at this point. I was like, oh, I think I have enough to write a book. And the running thread was around trying to find family connection, going back to being a kid of immigrants, right? Um, that's kind of that core hurt or wound that like, I feel like I'm not gonna be connected to my family in the way that I want to. Um, so I got to writing. Um, and, you know, during the first school year of the pandemic, you know, we were fighting so hard for ventilation. We were fighting for like masks, like, at one point, my school in September 2020, we had like maybe two days supply of masks. And I was like, what, what are 1800 schools going to do 
when we don't have the PPE, we don't have ventilation, we don't have the materials we need to uh, come back. And then in New York City, we had tens of thousands of people die of COVID. And we witnessed it and we heard the sirens and it was completely traumatic in a way that it was not traumatic in other places. And I get why other places opened all in because they just weren't facing COVID in the crowded, dense way that New York City is. We literally live on top of each other. Like I'm on the third floor of an apartment right now that when I'm speaking to you, right? So like we're breathing each other's air. If someone gets sick, the whole apartment gets sick, right? So things like that. Um, and so it really came down to whether the families wanted to show up. And we had no idea how many parents would want to show up. And of course, we wanted it to be equitable because low-income parents, like they still had to work through COVID. So we wanted to be able to provide. And But the main thing was we wanted it to be safe. But it turned out in the, September 2020, only about 20% of families ended up wanting to come back. And uh, this might piss off people, but it's true. Um, disproportionately, it was white families who wanted to come back to the school building. It was actually lower for Black, Latinx, and Asian families who, even though they're the more low-income families, were like, I'm also not risking my family's lives for this. Um, at, and the same rate, at least. Um, my my entire school basically was uh, Latinx and Asian families. So like it uh, wasn't the same. Um, but um, so then we worked through that first school year where we allowed families to choose. And then things in that spring got hopeful because high school uh, students were able to get the vaccines, but the vaccines weren't available until November 2021 for 12 and under. So that meant none of my elementary students like could get a vaccine. So we we begged, we were like, please just let the families of these like elementary and partially middle school students stay home if they want to, like give them a choice um, to come back or not. But Eric, Ad I think it was Eric Adams. I don't remember now. Uh, Bill de Blasio or Eric Adams, one of our mayors was like, no, we are forcing everyone to go back to the school building now. Um, you know, and that, you know, that fell into the same period of time as Omicron. Um, and so November 2021, finally, the vaccine's available for under 12. But then December is when everyone got Omicron. Uh, I did not get Omicron because I, I, I don't know how, but like, I feel like about half my school eventually got Omicron. Um, but just seeing sick kids come back to school after they had it, like, with memory issues, with brain fog, fatigued, it just was my breaking point. And I decided then I had to quit. Um, it was just, it, there's still moral injury around not serving our kids correctly. They, I feel like they could have waited a few months for our elementary kids whose families wanted to keep them home to let them get a vaccine before forcing them back. I have, I had a student who ended up leaving the school system because she didn't, want to get COVID. Um, and her family was like, we're not getting COVID. Um, and it should have been okay for the system to like wait a few months while we were getting those vaccines for the kids. But um, it just, it just wasn't right. Um, so that's why I left. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had a book to write, right? So like I, 
I took all of last year off. Like, sorry, not last year because we're in 2024 now. I took all of um, the 2022 to 23 school year to just write. Um, I got to go to like these writing conferences for my own savings. I, I did a residency um, and I got a first draft and then a second draft done. Um, but I, I didn't have a plan, but I also just had gotten married. Um, so I had my husband's health insurance and my husband was very much encouraging me to just focus on writing the book um, because there isn't a memoir out there on languages like I'm trying to do. Um, and there's no one in my family talking about Vincent Chin's legacy. And I know it's much more meaningful for me to tell that story than like, say, a, a person who is distant, for instance. Um, so yeah, so that's why I left teaching, um, which is why I said earlier, like, I can't imagine a world where I come back. Um, you know, when COVID is hopefully not as bad, you know, we've seen in this winter uh, of 2023 slash 2024 that like maybe about a third of people like will get COVID um, in America. Um, it's also despicable that like more than one in seven people who died of COVID in the whole entire world were Americans. Um, that should have been totally um, not the case. And we just as a society refuse to fight for safety and more than a million Americans have died as a result. And that is not the case anywhere else across the world. Um, it's absolutely shameful. I think what has happened in this country is the ethos of who we are has changed. There was a time in this country, and and, and you know, and my father uh, told me about this. Well, I didn't even know when he was a kid. Uh, like all of the vaccines were mandatory, and they were even going door to door to people if they had had them to give it to them. And as a result, uh, you know, people now for some reason, well, we do know the reason, but in some pockets, measles are kind of trying to creep up a little, a little bit, but measles and certain things, they had just went, went away because yes, everybody, right. Everybody was forced to get these vaccines. Right. Right. And so it was considered, I think, I believe it was considered eradicated like in 2000 or something like that. I, so I actually taught my students about this in 2019 before COVID ever was a thing. Um, and I talked about vaccine immunity and how like, you know, if everyone in a scenario is vaccinated, then you like, you could get it maybe, but it won't spread and it won't be as like intense. Mm -hmm. um, but if a few people in that audience, like of like a hundred get it, um, then they can actually spread it to even vaccinated people. And then they can really get it in an intense way because it, isn't eradicated anymore um and so like the rates of vaccine you know so like it was wild because i had been covering a measles outbreak with my students i i did this thing called morning news mm -hmm. um so you know there was like a measles uh you know warning that the doe had started sending out to family so i wanted to explain what that was so that my kids wouldn't be worried i was like 
pretty sure. And then uh, actually I learned that in 1989 and onward, um, that's when you got two doses so that if you got your uh, measles vaccine before 1989, and this is good for you to know, you probably need a re-up because you only got one shot. And there was actually a flight attendant who died um, because she had caught measles from somewhere. Um, and she only had had that one shot, which was like maybe like 90% effective versus like 95 or whatever percent effective and uh, ended up getting it from someone who was unvaccinated and died. Um, so um, it's, I really learned during COVID that we protect each other, we keep us safe. And that was really real. Um, and there was this huge misinformation campaign that made us so we could not remain safe. And that's why COVID will be here forever now because we did not make the choice in the beginning of this to keep us safe in the first place. And I think something like 10,000 people died last month of COVID. Wow. You know, it's still a thing and it's higher rates than the flu. Um, it's not just the flu. It's absolutely wild and despicable that we've allowed this to happen. And not that me and you have allowed this to happen, but yeah, yeah. as a society that we've allowed this to happen. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I did get another uh, set of shots in 92. Okay, good. Uh, so <laughs> got him as a kid. And then when I was getting ready to go to college... The, the college I uh, was going to had a medical form that had to be filled out. And part of it was getting, uh, you know, my shots again. Uh, so I and was not, I hate needles. So when, definitely not happy about getting those uh, shots. But it's one of those things where now in this country, it's such about the individual. Yeah. And not about the collective that we and are education education is a collective yes and if we had found out anything through covid it is that education is a collective act and it's not up to just the schools to house children like there's so many ways in which we have no social safety net um and our schools were not prepared for covid in any way shape or form um and you know we we got to do better like we we should have listened to there's so many other countries who are doing this better, including providing universal health care for people. Um, and that, that's a huge reason why we're in the <laughs> predicament. I mean, but let's let's talk about maybe like happier things, things that we are within our control. Cause this this stuff is like wild. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's different. Uh, you know, we 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 have a different uh Again, the ethos has changed, and 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 we have politics, politics. I put it this way, uh, have have come in uh, with a lot of people uh, having people point the fingers at other folks or each other, and not thinking that if one person wins, uh, so to speak, we all win. Right? It's not about so, you know, this people over here getting something that I don't get. But when somebody is able to make a come up, we all make the come up because of what? Yeah. Because of how they, that when their quality of life is improved, it all happens. You know, it's one of those things to where, and I know it's a tangent I'm about to say, but when people talk about 
raising the minimum wage. And certain people are like, we can't be doing this. I said, but do you not understand that those people are going to spend more money? And because they spend more money, local businesses are going to make more money. And because these, and then other people start making more money, and guess what's going to happen to stock prices? Because these people are going to be meeting sales sales projections are over, and now their stock price is going to be going up. So it's all connected when somebody make a come up. So it's not about, oh uh, you know, we need to understand sort of that that uh, thing of we are a collective and we should be really looking out uh, for each other and not demonizing other people or not thinking, hey, it's about me. You know, I brought myself up. I do this, which you ain't done shit by yourself. Uh, you know, like everything, everything requires other people uh, to be, you know, to be there for you. And so you, you, I, I want to know about this whole thing about you writing because there's people out there who are thinking, hey, you know, I want to be a writer. I got a book in me, but no one, you know what I mean? So, well, no one wants to hear what I have to say or no one's going to buy my book. And the only thing that I will say on that is anything you want to do, you just got to do it, right? <laughs> now, whether someone reads it, buys it, listens to it, watches it, that's totally different. That's out of your control, but you yep. can't, but you got to get it out, right? You, you, you yep. can't just talk about it. You got to be about it. Yeah, so, I think it's, it's one of those things where if you died today, like I, I think my whole frame of life changed when I learned about Vincent Chin, right? He was about to get married. He was about to go after this job. He was going after the so-called American dream. Um, but because of what was happening in Detroit at the time, this recession was happening and Japanese uh car companies were being blamed for the loss of American jobs, right? Always labor shortages or economic downturns or diseases or illnesses that go toward Asian Americans uh, as the cause, right? Um, the incorrect cause, I'm gonna be clear. Um, my cousin was celebrating his bachelor party and uh, was mistaken as Japanese and was killed for it. Uh, and I think every day, like, I could die tomorrow, like not like in the most morbid way, just like it's just the truth. I could get hit by a car. I could like something horrible could happen without knowing it. And so I think every day like is, am I good with where like I'm ending today? Like, mm. am I good with this life that I'm living right now because Literally tomorrow, this life could end. Will I be happy that I lived my life this way? Um, I'm not done with the book yet, um, but I know that if I were to die tomorrow, that I'm happy that having gone to go toward my dream. And I think my biggest fear in my life is that I will not have had my dream realized for whatever reason. Um, so I think to anyone who's trying to write something or do anything big in their life, like, is this the life you want to lead? Will you regret not doing the thing? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to have my life, um, you know, 
be this where I don't have my dream met if I had control over it. Like there's lots of things we don't have control over. COVID, obviously we had no control over, um, but we have control over how we respond to it and how we can make change happen. And I know for a fact that my COVID advocacy during uh, the very beginning of the pandemic really helped uh, make changes toward like what the New York City system did around COVID. I was all over the newspapers being like, we got to do better. Um, and you can just literally look me up in any New York City newspaper and find a quote I did around COVID safety. Um, and I did that while teaching. I did that while like advocating around stop API hate when all these hate crimes started happening again and telling my cousin's story again. Um, and I did that while writing. Um, because I knew that my cousin's story made a difference in how other people perceive themselves and their empowerment. Um, it's because of Vincent Chin's mother, my great auntie Lily Chin, that his name's known, that the term Asian American has this political power and how all of these Asian American orgs that have come since, all these lawyers, all these activists come because my great auntie Lily decided to take up space and tell her uh, son's story over and over again to her own emotional detriment, right? Um, so I have to constantly think too, like what is gonna be the thing for me that helps me make a true difference in this life, like a high impact, high quality difference in other people's lives. And that's telling my cousin's story. And that's also working with other Asian American youth like an immigrant youth to be like, you are enough. You may not have all the language yet. You may not know all of your history yet, but you can go after that, especially in this age of the internet. Um, and so really empowering people to go after what they want. Um, and so that's, you know, in the 2022-23 school year, um, you know, I, I really just wrote like no tomorrow, but I also had to like, I cried for months, like of just um, not even about leaving teaching necessarily, but yes, I did cry about that. But I cried over the things that I hadn't processed about my childhood of like not being able to speak to my parents fully. Like even in this conversation with you, Dr. Will, like I can tell my parents maybe 10% of this conversation mm. in Chinese because I just don't have the vocabulary. I know like social things, you know, how are you? Uh, what do you want to eat today? Like, where are you going? Like things of that nature. But like, I didn't even know how to say special education teacher. till maybe like four years in and I had to like do a dictionary search online that didn't exist when I started teaching, you know, things of that nature. Um, so in terms of the writing, um, you know, it, it's weird. I, I found out like last year or something that Vincent Chin wanted to be a writer. Um, and his mom, our inimitable Lily Chin was like, it's not going to make you any money. <laughs> it's not making me any money. Um, and I've had to pay for things like a uh, bread loaf um, and the Tin House Writers Workshop. Um, these are these like conferences that help writers connect to each other. Um, but I was like, you know what, if this is going to happen, I need to get to the next level. And it's by meeting other people who are doing the same thing. Um, and yeah, so the memoir is about me, uh, again, like trying to 
cope with being a kid of immigrants who can't speak the same language while also finding purpose in my cousin's story and then putting that purpose to action by being a teacher of uh, kids whose languages at home aren't English, plus also um, fighting on behalf of special education rights and also like fighting on behalf of Asian Americans by telling my family story. Um, and so uh, I have a very unique story. Um, I know eventually it'll get sold. Uh, I have such faith in myself, but in terms of someone who feels like their story doesn't matter, um, exactly as you said, Dr. Will, like you gotta write it without any means of publishing it. Like I'm writing right now the story for me. And I am not going to send this story to an agent or an editor until I know it is 100% my vision. Um, and if I don't ever expect to make a dime off of it, like for some reason, at least I will know I have gone after my dream of like making sure this story is told. And I hope like for me, it's not about selling it. It's about making sure the story's out there for the people who need it. Um, and in this capitalist system, unfortunately, the way to do that is by selling the book. So I, I've kind of come to terms with that. But um, the main focus for me is like, you you might need to be writing to heal. You might, it's therapeutic, it's not therapy, just to be clear. Um, but you may need to write this book for yourself or you may, may need to write stories. Like I started writing short, much shorter stories that um, we're about 500 words long. You can hear them on the Moth Radio Hour if you want. Um, they're not very long at all, but you may have to write a shorter version of it in order to get to a larger version if you want to write it as a book. You may never want to write it as a book, but at least you'll have written the story. Um, and then you can move on from knowing that you did the thing and that like you don't have to like keep thinking about the thing in your brain. Like It, it lives somewhere outside of you, and that's the most important part. Um, so... Whoever is trying to write, um, whoever is even trying to speak, um, know that like you just got to start somewhere and start small. Like you don't want to feel like you are never going to meet your goal because you made it too big. Like I did not get to trying to write a book because like I I just felt like it was too much. But then when Kim Early when died of COVID, um, I was like I have to write the book. That's that's really what happened at the mm. end of the day and you may not you may not have a book in you that's okay too so speaking of your memoir how do you decide what parts of your life to disclose and put it out there and what parts should be held privately yeah so first you just gotta write it down like you gotta write it all down all the stuff that matters to you write it down and know that like i think what uh Someone, I think it was like Hemingway who said something like out of maybe like 90 something pages, maybe one page is good. Um, something along those lines. Um, but you're you're just gonna be writing a lot to like get to the meat of what's important to you. Like I I just kept writing these stories about my dad. Like, like I, I think I said earlier, like I had like 20 stories by the time I got to uh 2020, right? And like 15 out of 20 were all about finding family connection. And it's like, oh, there that that's what matters to me. And then mm -hmm. then 
uh, in terms of that, then I'm like, okay, so how do I write an arc where I'm like going toward family connection or not, right? Like, what are the stories that make sense in this? And then everything else kind of falls away. Like even being a teacher who teaches uh, kids of immigrants, right? Um, or immigrants themselves, that was a way to reach my family. Telling my family story, that was always a way to reach my family. Um, even being a special education teacher in general, like that was a way for me to make money for my family. Um, so like, you gotta realize what at the core of it matters to you. And then like, but the only way to do that is to keep writing and to see like, what is the gold on the page? Like, you're gonna write a lot of crap. It's gonna happen. But like, you'll see from that crap that like there there's gold in there and you have to search for that gold within the piece. And like, what is emotion? emotionally resonating for people. I'll also recommend don't show people too early. Um, show people when you have like kind of a foundation in your writing of like what um, this, this I'm gonna continue this writing even with bad feedback from you. Like you, you wanna hold it tight until like you have enough that you're ready to ask someone for like, how's this resonating with you? Um, and it's funny, like oftentimes when I'm doing my best writing and I, I share it with people, like sometimes they'll be like, exactly what you thought is exactly what I thought is fully emotionally resonating for the reader. Mm -hmm. And then there's other points where they're like, I'm confused by this thing. Can you like elaborate on this thing? Um, and that's a point where you're like, oh, like I, I need to like the language narrative, like of not knowing my languages, that's been the last um, piece of the puzzle piece of my memoir of like how do I write my non-English languages on a page that's meant for English language readers um and that's been a huge puzzle piece but what happened did not happen in English so I cannot fully like share the dialogue in English it just isn't what happened and it's not truthful so I think going toward what is truthful for you um while knowing like, you know, um, that some things are going to stay private because it's not your story to tell um, is really important too. I think I, I was speaking with a, a writer who had published a book, uh, a memoir, and she had used an adjective about her sister that was not kind to her sister. And her sister, it was just one word, one word to describe her sister. I don't know what the word was. Uh, I don't remember, but that led to her sister not talking to her for years um, because she had chosen this one adjective that could have been changed, like, and then her sister would have been fine. Her sister was fine with the whole entire book, except that one adjective of her. So I think just writing from a place where you have also processed it, like if you're going toward publication, that is like, you can write whatever you want in your own privacy. But if you're writing toward publication, you have to be writing from a space where you're no longer angry or resentful or bitter. You have to write from a place of kindness and reflection um, where you know your role in that and you're willing to write truthfully and honestly about your role within it. Um, and then just, again, not tell the story of someone else because that's just not fair. Mm. And what does your writing routine look like? Like I have a book... Uh, being released end of next month. Woo. Woo. Yes, alhamdulillah. And it took me over a year 
to write it because I have to write based upon mood, inspiration. I can't just sit down at the laptop and force myself to say, okay, for the next hour, next two hours, I'm going to write. So how do you get the words onto the screen? I mean, I'm figuring this out too, <laughs> but I think the biggest thing I've been learning is get to the path of least resistance. Make it as easy as possible to write. Like right here, for instance, I didn't realize that a lamp by my desk would help so much. Um, but now I have a lamp that is by my desk, right? Where I can see the words. Like just having light on my desk has been so helpful. But like stupid little things like that that you wouldn't even think of um, to help you write. Like now I have a constant list of prompts. So like for the memoir, like I'm in kind of like the symbols and motifs phase of like the third draft. I was like, oh, um, <clears throat> when the first chapter has to include like a Walkman <clears throat> and then the second chapter has to include like, oh, I've went up to the CD MP3 player. And then <laughs> like, then like chapter, I'm, I'm working on chapters five and six right now where we're trying to get MP3 player. So like kind of, like making sure that technology is like going through the drafts because like me including in chapter five, the MP3 player has no meaning if the CD player and the Walkman were not introduced earlier mm. in chapters one and two, right? Um, so just constantly making a list of like moments and things like that. But then I'm, I'm also curious, what genre were you writing in for your book? I wrote a business book for educators. Right. So a business book, like a nonfiction book that's prescriptive is a very different book to write than like a memoir where not only do you have to like have distance from your life. Right. Like so I had to actually find the distance like and write this as if I were not the main character. Right. Um, but also like you're writing some of the toughest moments of your life. So like that's much this project, like including my storytelling time has taken at least seven years. It's going on eight years now, but like dedicated writing time, it's been about three, four years. Um, and that's because it's a memoir. It's, it's very different from a business book. Um, in terms of that, like, I'm wondering if you outlined it, for instance. Uh, yes and no. I had someone help me with the outline of the book and then... I started writing because I looked at it and I said, okay, this isn't uh, robust enough. And then I had other people read it and, and they gave me feedback on it. And then once I started sort of adding stuff and then I was, you know, I was would watch uh, YouTube videos like Harvard iLabs and other things. And I go, oh, I love that. Let me start putting some of that in the book or whatever. And then more people read the bread. It gave me some more feedback. And then it got to a point to where I was like, all right, I think I have something good. I have something special here. And then I had to walk away from it because when we were going through the editing uh, phase of it, it was like, I can't just keep changing stuff you know because you because you won't be happy with everything nope right so i'm like i'm gonna fix like glaring things that need to be fixed and 
outside of that, I'm just going to leave how I worded things or what I said, just as is, and just walk away because because I can't keep myself attached to this thing like this. So, um, because yeah. a very different experience for my dissertation because my dissertation I wanted it out of my life, and that took over yeah. a year too. But I wanted that thing out of my life, and the book, this book, wasn't quite like that as in terms of that, but. Uh, that I just wanted it to my my goal in writing this book and and uh inshallah I accomplish it is if you're an educator and you're thinking I want to be an entrepreneur that this book is going to take you from it's going to teach you how do you do that right or if I'm already started it but I'm not seeing certain types of progress you read and you'll go this is what I'm missing in it. I really wanted it to be a, a business book that was for an educator by an educator yep. and, and not something where they would probably have to go buy something that was a traditional business book from somebody and sort of have to see, well, how do I implement these different things into my context, but have something already written for them. So, um, yeah. They, and, and so hearing you speak, I think, um, so there's a few things I'm pulling out of that, right? That like there's um, in writing lingo, there's like there's the plotters, right? Who like have this like really robust outline and then they just kind of write based on the outline. And then there are these pantsers who kind of just write as they go and figure it out. And I think I'm in the latter camp. I had to figure a lot of things out as I went. And then there are planters who kind of make like this flexible outline and give themselves room to change things as they go. So it seems like you may have been planting a little bit, right? A little bit of plotting, but as things change, uh, you know, things changed, right? And then over time, then I used what I pants, right? I had this ridiculously horrible first draft. All of all first drafts are horrible, I think, and they should be horrible. And that's okay, because you have to like iterate and figure it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I had, I made a big outline, like a dream outline based on what I had. And then that's what I did for the second draft. And now the third draft for me has been actually putting myself in the draft. It's, it's funny as a memoirist, I'm like, I didn't, I included all these events in my life, but I don't include my like own feelings, my emotions about it. And I think what you just said about like, I'm constantly changing things. Like I have been stuck on chapters one, two, three for like months. And finally this week I was like, I have to leave chapters one and three and I will come back to those. And I have to write the rest of the book um, because those things are much more concrete, right? That like, I know what happens in chapters four through 35. And like those events did not change. And my emotions actually show up a lot better on those. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, I've been kind of writing on the sides. It's like, okay, this needs to be in chapter one and two, the CD MP3 player thing. So that the, sorry, the CD player, so that the MP3 player in chapter five lands. Um, that's why this is an emotional beat, um, et cetera, et cetera. So like, mm -hmm. I'm actually going to now go backwards and I'm kind of planting as I go. Um, but I think in terms of writing, you just have to set an ideal schedule for yourself, like what works. So now for me, um, my workday at this not-for-profit, by the way, my new job is uh, running a virtual mentoring program for Asian American youth. So like I, 
I literally did a workshop yesterday on Asian American stereotypes. I got to talk about my family story during the workshop. Um, and I encouraged my mentees to like take up space as Asian Americans and how might we do that? Um, so I'm still getting to do my mission um, and be an educator, but actually have time to like research for workshops and work with other people who also have the same mission of working with Asian American youth. So, uh, so I have a day job that's 10 through six, right? And then I've got to have some time to run errands and whatever. Um, so now eight to nine time is just time to eat and have quality time with my husband. Um, and then nine through 11 is my writing time. So I've like, if I don't have anything going on and I, um, I have those two hours and within those two hours, I've got what, like these like affirmation cards with like things on them. Uh, I have like different storytelling prompt cards. Um, but then I also have like my ridiculous list of symbols and motifs to be like, okay, which one of these do I want to write today? You also don't have to write in order a lot of the time, or you might be revising. Like, so like giving yourself some tasks and knowing which tasks take 10 minutes, which tasks take 30 minutes, which tasks take an hour, which tasks take two hours and knowing which one, like if you're not having a ton of energy, try to do the 10 minute task. I can fill out this chart with a few more symbols and motifs. I can put the MP3 player here. I can put whatever here. Um, but if you're like, I'm really guns a blazing, let's go. Let's go revise chapter four now. So like spend that dedicated time. So it's really about not thinking of just the page mm -hmm. as the thing you're writing. You're always writing toward that goal at the end of the day but letting that marination be also part of this process and really letting yourself see that reading is also part of the writing. So like I'm constantly reading. I, I think this month in January alone, I've listened to like four or five audiobooks. Yeah. Um, because like you have, you have to hear other people's writing and like kind of take like, Oh, this, this was a good line. Like I, I want, I don't want this line in my book, obviously because no plagiarizing. Um, but like, that writing then makes your voice like better and more honed. And then also on the converse, reading bad writing is really awesome for you to be like, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want that stupid rom-com trope of them miscommunicating and then coming back at the end because they have finally communicated the right way. Um, so in terms of the actual writing routine, um, it, I think I, I heard over a YouTube video yesterday um, and also warning about YouTube videos. Oftentimes they're like kind of like 101 videos. Um, so you might need to get to the 201 or even 301 uh, by taking writing classes that are on topics that you need to write right now. So like I took like a, a writing class on writing the emotions before the climax of a book, yeah, like on Friday, for instance, because that's something I didn't know how to do. So I was like, oh, and then next month, I'm actually taking an inner child class on like writing the inner child so that that I can use that for chapters one, two, and three that have been tripping me up for months. Um, you might, yeah, the YouTube videos are mostly 101. So you oftentimes actually need writing. There's Grub Street, there's Hugo House, there's Sackett Street, there's all these organizations that do writing classes online. So you can find something that matches whatever you're missing in your book in terms of craft. Um, but also you need to feel safe with the writing. So like feeling like I have all of these things around me and then 
sometimes feeling like I'm still an imposter, like me, like I have all these storytelling credits and I still feel like an imposter. And I'm like, no, you went to these conferences, you took these classes, you've gotten all this wonderful feedback from people. Like, how the hell do you feel like an imposter when you know your writing is good? Um, and I think oftentimes the imposter syndrome is like, I don't have enough time to. Um, but unfortunately, you got to set the time. Um, I literally sent out an email last month to my friends. And I was like, you are not going to see me till June. Uh, my goal is to be done with the draft in June and start querying agents. But I am not going to see you unless there's like some big life events like weddings and things like that. Um, you're not going to see me till June uh, because I'm writing. Uh, and then friends, like they they were so great. They were like, I got you. Go after your dream. You got this. I'll see you in June. Another friend was like, uh, I told ex her exactly what my dream was with the languages. She's like, here's this podcast where this guy is talking about not being able to speak his languages with his dad. Uh, I hope this is like really helpful for you. Like, so sometimes even just saying your dream out loud, uh, then like allows the world to manifest for you. Hey, here's this thing. Even yesterday, I was um, at the storytelling show for a friend um, and the person running the show had a contact that I'm going to use that is like a a contact that I've like been meaning to contact them like oh this person is someone to reach out to so like once you kind of manifest to the world like what um what you're trying to do then other people have ideas for you um including like this high school friend of mine like she's a linguist mm. why didn't I think to talk to a linguist about my heritage language attrition, right? Which is the technical term, heritage language attrition. Um, and so we're gonna have a conversation on Tuesday about it because I need to talk to her. Um, a few weeks ago, like I couldn't attend. And because I remember she was a linguist, I was like, oh, she's going to this conference. And then in the conference program, I didn't go to said linguistic conference, but in the program notes, I saw someone who speaks my native language, Toisan, and did a study about it. So I reached out to her and we had a chat last week about it. So um, it's those kinds of things where like, if you're manifesting in the world and you're doing your research on the people that know stuff about it, then like, it's gonna help you make your dream happen, uh, whatever that dream is. Um, in terms of my writing, um, that has really helped because other Toysan people are like, there's so few of us. Um, we got to stick together. Now I have a Toysan writing group that I'm meeting with tomorrow. So like a lot of it is building community with the people who are trying to do the same thing. So that it's not just about the imposter thing of like, I can't do this, but it's also the, I'm the only one doing this and it feels lonely. You have to also abate the loneliness and be safe with other people. So there's the craft piece that right? you feel like you don't have the skills to do it, which means you got to take more writing classes or learn from people in the 201 and 301 levels, not just the 101 YouTube level. Um, but you also have to feel that safety around, oh, like I have people with me. I um, have enough to write. I am like, I, even if I'm not skilled yet at this, I'm going to build my skill, right? I hate growth mindset in the education space because it's so been misappropriated um, and used in just horrible ways in the classroom. But in terms of whatever skill you're trying to go toward, what whatever like Malcolm Gladwell says about the 10,000 hours, which also has been misattributed too, 
um, you just got to work at it. You, you mm. actually have to do the practice of doing the thing. Um, so, uh, in terms of actually getting myself on the page, a lot of the time I'm like, not actually with the draft. Um, I'll be revising parts of it. I'll be trying to figure out things. Um, and sometimes that marination means that then it just takes me a few hours to finish chapter four. And that's what I hope to do today to finish chapter four, um, within a few hours because I've been marinating on it for so long. Um, oh, and going back to that YouTube video I was talking about, uh, someone was saying the flow state is, um, I think it was struggle. You're struggling with something, then you let it marinate for a while. Then you're in the flow state. And then finally, I think the last stage was like reflection on like, how did this go for you? Um, and all of that. So I, I could be getting the last step wrong, but um the struggle and marination states are actually super important for whatever you're trying to do um, because um, the, the marinating part especially means that like you're really thinking through the problem hard and thinking through everything like it's a problem to solve rather than something that you're failing at is super, super important and just kind of iterating um, and trying and trying again before you finally get to the solution. Mm. So one of the things that I, I see with writers and you have been doing this uh, is people public speaking and getting out of there and whether it's your work as an activist, uh, you know, sharing something that you feel that needs to be shared and for me, I think some of the, the best speakers that I have seen uh, have a story to tell. And though they may, you know, be, be be speaking about something at this one event, stuff is still sort of resonating from that core story. Um, how did you discover your voice as a speaker and discover that story within yourself? So going back to what I said about um, writing for Julian Vasquez Heilig's blog, right? I was talking about my experience with Teach for America and not having the special education supports I needed. Um, and just writing that out um, made me know that I wasn't alone in that experience and that there were other people who related to me and getting kind of that feedback almost immediately from people like, yeah, like, thank you for saying that really helped me know that the piece resonated. And it wasn't like, it was funny because that specific blog entry was just me doing speech to text. So like it wasn't edited or anything. Um, and I really wish now it was edited because now that was 10 years, almost 11 years ago, because we're in 2024 now. Um, so now you're going to think of your first writing works as like the worst because you're you're going to wish you had edited it more. Um, so from that, then I felt more confident um, becoming like an advocate around special education um, and knowing exactly kind of what my students needed, which then I, I think you can't be a writer without being in the world. And you have to have experiences in the world to write about them. Like you if you're that writer in a cabin hold up by yourself, you're it's not gonna be as energetic or as like 
real in a social environment unless you're I don't know that's just as an extrovert this is my horrible opinion you might you might have my hot take take me down whatever um but um in terms of that then I was working with the special education committee for the Chicago Teachers Union and we were finding real issues across the schools and that culminated in like a 2015 budget cut that uh, Chicago public schools are trying to do. And they uh, had hired, I think, some consultant firm that had no business dealing with special education law. And we're like, you need to cut 600 uh, paraprofessionals who are the lifeblood of special education classrooms. Um, and so we fought and we said, this is illegal. This is like, against federally mandated IEPs. And we won back we didn't just uh, gain back most of those positions. There were schools that lost positions for sure, that the ones, the schools that didn't fight back um, because they made it so that like, we had to like fight as individual schools to kind of audit the minutes that our kids were missing. Mm. Um, but we also were able to prove to the district that in fact, we're already understaffed as is, and they were forced to hire 150 people instead of cutting like hundreds of positions. Um, and so that was the first time I like have publicly spoken to newspapers and media. Um, and I spoke with this reporter, Sarah Karp, uh, who ended up a few years later doing an investigation on special education in Chicago public schools, I think in like 27 or 2018, and found that 10, over 10,000 students were not getting their services met. Uh, and that led to Chicago public schools losing its own like authority to run its own special education program. And it got taken over by the state. And I'm not, I believe it's still in place, but every two weeks, uh, Chicago public schools has to meet with the Chicago teachers union to determine whether they're making progress on actually serving those 10,000 kids that they failed to serve in the first place. Um, so that was a huge one. And this was like my third or fourth year teaching <laughs> that I helped do that as like co-chair of the Sh Chicago Teachers Union Special Ed Committee. Um, because I knew intimately like what that looked like in the classroom. And I could say my students suffered because we didn't have that paraprofessional. Mm -hmm. um, and I spoke at every single board meeting that I could um, around a personal story of like, what happened when a paraprofessional is not in the classroom that day? Um, for especially my uh, students who were not uh, communicating in neurotypical ways. Um, and so that uh, particular storytelling was really important for me to know, oh, like, it's not just the stats. It's not just the 600 plus paraprofessionals who are fired, like what will happen? It's the, what happens when one of them's out of the classroom and then imagine that times 600. Um, and that's that was 2015. And then it was 2016 that I then went public around my cousin Vincent Chin's story as a relative for the first time. Um, because I um, there was a case in New York City around an Asian American cop who has shot a black man named Akai Gurley in the stairwell of his own um, residence in public housing. Um, and uh, the cop was found guilty of manslaughter. And there was there were 10,000 Asian Americans in New York City. And then just across the nation, there were all these rallies 
supporting the Asian American Cup, which was I just found so gross. Um, and then some people are starting to compare this Asian American Cup and saying that he hasn't had justice as the one guy who's been indicted in NYPD for over a decade. Uh, he hasn't had justice, just like Vincent Chin didn't have justice. And that pissed me off because this Asian American cop was alive um, and Vincent Chin, my cousin, was murdered. And so I wrote a reply in Medium, which then went on the front page of Huffington Post um, and then got hundreds of comments that were either very much in support or very much against my opinion. Um, but that made me realize also that like, my family story mattered because there were all these think pieces from like lefty Asian Americans who like obviously were not listening to the community and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I come along and like, I'm the literal cousin of a person that like you're trying to compare right now that has made history in his own like horrible way. And you can't say this, like, this is not okay. And my, my words actually made a difference in how that conversation went in my community. Um, and so that's when I knew that I had to keep telling my cousin's story and keep telling just in general, my family stories, including around us not knowing language, uh, that, so the first story I told for the moth radio hour was around Vincent. And then the second story I told was around me not speaking my parents' languages and us finding a different way to communicate without, um, the languages, uh, that, you know, we typically think of. Mm. So yeah, so that um, then that led to speaking engagements because then I was like, oh, people actually want to hear it from someone. And oh, and the big thing to all the ed edupreneurs, being a teacher and educator for a decade means you're a really good speaker. You've done it for hours a day, every day, but for the K through 12 at least. Um, and then if you're a college level educator, you've done it at least probably twice a week for however many years you've been a teacher, which means you have the speaking practice to do this. Um, and it, it was around the five year mark for me of teaching that I was like, oh, I'm actually a pretty good speaker. I remember my first few years of teaching, I was not yet because I didn't really understand the points that I wanted to make or um, you know, just the ideas that I wanted to make clear. But then by year five, like I was really good at it, especially as a special education teacher. Um, so, and oftentimes I'll hear from teachers, like, I'm really good speaking in front of kids, but not adults. And then I'm like, why do you think that is? And I, in my opinion, think there's ageism involved. Like you think teaching, uh, speaking to kids is less important than speaking to adults. Um, or that you feel like what you say isn't important or you can't make them clear. Yo, you've made it clear with kids for years mm -hmm. and you know how to make a point across because you've been teaching for years. So no, don't you say that you can't be a speaker. You've literally been doing this for your job for however many years you've been doing it. So go speak. Mm. It's all right. So it's been awesome uh, having you on the show. And, and I think before I go, I want to talk to you about your advice, your recommendation uh, for that educator who, at this point, whether they they have listened to this episode and 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 heard uh, your story, 
Uh, or <clears throat> like many people, you get on Twitter and you see all of these educators that you I have seen at conferences or you connect with dropping these pictures of the cover of their books or doing, hey, I just signed this contract with this publishing company. I'm going to be doing this. Uh, and they're like, hey, okay, I, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, but they're like, well, how, how do, you know, how do I, how do I start? Right. You know, mm -hmm. I worked with someone to get my book off the, to get my book off the ground because there was no way I was going to be able to just stare at a, at a blank screen and get yeah. something going. Uh, so what do you tell that teacher to get them started on writing that book? Yeah, I think um, just see if you like writing. Like, honestly, like just just try to write a few lines, right? Someone uh, said to me, they write if they write 50 words a day, that's success, right? So like write something and oftentimes that momentum will lead, that 50 words will lead to 500 words. And most authors like, only write for two to three hours a day because you just you cannot you just cannot write for eight hours a day it I'm sorry that's impossible um but they're like even like I've been kind of looking into other people's writing routines like Stephen King Brandon Sanderson whatever you see online as people's writing routines they're not spending all day writing like they might be doing other tasks like I just said like the editing like like looking at the words maybe gathering ideas maybe journaling like that are not necessarily around the actual pages on the whatever the book mm -hmm. um but you you just gotta start brainstorming and writing and um I got really lucky as a storyteller that I knew from those 20 stories that I had told like which stories resonated I could see the immediate feedback as uh attentive listeners were with me with those stories right um, so part of it could be just telling people your idea um, and just being like, what do you think? You know, you don't want to like go into it when you're like hearts on the line. You know, you want to have some distance from it. You don't want to have them break your heart by saying, I don't, I wouldn't read that. Or like, it's just people read different genres. So, like they're the fantasy writers and readers like may not be reading my memoir and that's okay. It's just not for them. That doesn't mean that uh, your book uh, idea is not any good or not um, but in terms of being out of the classroom um, I I had been able to save enough money um, during my 10 plus years of teaching plus also getting married helped because of the health insurance case so I was able to take some time off um, and this honestly this current job that I have I was just like kind of googling like Asian American like in like the an idealist.org because I wanted whatever I did next to be maybe for a not-for-profit. I just searched for Asian American and because that's kind of what I do nowadays. Um, and I found this job and I got the job. Um, so you might want to think too about the skills that you have that you that people are willing to pay for. I think it's this uh is this Japanese idea called Ikigai, um, I-K-I-G-A-I, -I -I, um, where it's something that you are passionate about, that you're good at, that um, someone will be willing to pay for. Uh, and there's a fourth thing. Um, 
that the world needs, that the world needs. Um, so trying to really figure out teaching was and still is a big part of that guy for me because I'm still educating today. Um, but um, it may not be teaching like for the 41 years you're thinking. I think it's like I, I, this for me is also just like a very healthy break for me that I, I still do love teaching and I can see myself go toward it. And I think the last point I'll make exactly as you said, Dr. Will, is that sometimes you feel so attached to something that you're doing the wrong things with the thing, right? If you're writing a book, you're just like ch making changes and you feel like, oh, like I have to make a change in this thing. Whereas maybe taking a break, like maybe like, and this is horrible as a teacher to say, but like maybe not putting your all into, maybe leaving at dismissal is the way to figure out, do I still love this the way I do? Do I uh, still want to be doing this the way I am? Are there things outside of work after dismissal that I want to be doing? And how can I build that thing, whether it's writing or uh, whatever kind of entrepreneur you want to be? Um, you do have to build a skill into it and build the time in for it. Uh, I'm kind of an extreme example where I said I am not going to see my friends for a little bit, but that's because I'm at the finish line of the draft. And I know that I actually have to dedicate this time, but um, you have to figure out where you're going to put the time in to do this and also maybe take some distance from it to make sure it's the thing you actually want to do. Mm. That's all right. Thank you, Annie, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Will. You are welcome. Now, people, and you I'm know. So, I'm excited to like check out your book. Uh, what's what's up with your book going on? Um, it is uh the publisher told me end of next month. Um, the title of the book is The Entrepreneur, Your Blueprint to Jumpstart and Scale Your Education Business. Mm. And so uh I am excited about it and um I just emailed the publisher for another PDF version uh, because she had sent me uh, a few, like, uh, you know, PDFs. I could actually look at it as it would look like as a book. Right. And then go through and then we were making certain changes. And I have uh, what I call contributing authors in the book. And what they are it is I interview people who are doing the work. Right. They they are are teachers who are consulting, they're writing, they're speaking, etc. And I have I took direct quotes from those interviews and put it into the book so that it doesn't feel like a textbook where there is that break where you hear a first hand narrative from someone who's doing the work. And, and there's a part in there that, that is me as, as well in terms of my first hand narrative in that that kind of. So the book feels has a different feel to it and not just like, oh, I am reading this book that is going to tell me how to incorporate my business. Uh, what is good credit? What does that look like? Blah, blah, blah. But have it where someone says, hey, this is how I started and I had to get business insurance and I did this and I worked with these people and all that stuff. And so um, I was going you know, through the PDF and had, uh, I sent it off and I said, look, 
these are in quotes. You said this. Are you good? Are you good with this going out? Is there anything you need me to change about your title and all other stuff? And uh, everybody, a couple of people are like, yeah, my title is this or my business has this name or blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, just going through changing sort of those last few things, I, I want like another PDF to send off because uh, at this point now, because the book, because it's getting ready, uh, be so close to publishing and she's going to get ready to set up pre-orders uh, where people can pre-order the book. I'm like, well, I need to get that PDF off to yep. some folks who, who can have me on their show. There you uh, go. Right. So I'm like, yo, let me let me get this out there. Because I have a goal. I say the book should come out in the February. So between March and June, I have a goal of 100 copies that I want to be sold. Love it. Love it. And, and uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that, yeah, those advanced reader copies are going to be good to send off to people. Um, yeah. And I, I'm really excited to check it out when it's uh, out there in the world. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. Uh, as well. And I'm going to see how it goes, because, again, this is not one of those like normally the education books that I see educators put out. Yep. Whether it be a memoir or these books that are talking about SEL or ed tech or something related to their specialty. This is a book for a very small <laughs> amount of people who yeah. are interested in, hey, I want to start a business. Uh, but I wanted educators who want to do that, just like my podcast. My I know my podcast isn't for you know everyone. Uh, I just want them to be like, this is a roadmap for me to do this thing. Like I talk about business insurance, right. which I don't know if they think about it. Listen, I didn't think about business insurance. I was actually consulting and didn't have business insurance, and it didn't even pop. Really, it did not pop into my mind until. Someone reached out to me about presenting at their online conference, and I had to fill out paperwork to become a vendor for that university. And then it asked me, "Yep, do you have business insurance?" And I was like, "Oh, I do not, but I'm going to check yes." And then I called up Allstate because, and and then I and, and that was my only reference because I've done that too. I'm like, "What is uh, business insurance?" And then I was like, "Hiscox, okay, Hiscox, thank you very much." Yeah, so I yes. got you. So yeah. I didn't even think about it, right? And then yeah, Hiscox was actually it's mentioned in my book for one of the educational consultants who who used that. Uh, she's in Philadelphia, uh, but I was just like, I have car insurance and, and, and homeowners insurance with all state. Let me call them up. And then right, right, they right. said, Hey, we don't personally provide it. However, one of the companies that I guess we own does do that. So right. boom, got business insurance through, through that company. And again, like, I just want educators to be like, yo, this is how I do this. Not to want to make sure my stuff is legally sound. Yep. I also tell people, and, and I'm writing this, Make sure you go see an accountant and a lawyer, right? I, you know, don't just take my because I don't provide legal advice like that. But nope, uh, nope. but say these are the things you need to be looking out for. Uh, do go see these professionals, but then also talk about niching down and creating your most viable uh, product and a lean canvas business model and 
content marketing and all that stuff. So um, I'm really hoping that this book is something that educators will read and go, oh, all right now, let's, let's make this happen. Even on the IPN, I tell educators, buy your own stuff. Yep. Because if you write that book on your teacher laptop, no. right, your school could claim ownership over that book. Yep, don't do that. Yep, don't do that. But some people may not think about that because that's the laptop they always use because the district gave it to them. Yep, yep, absolutely. So I said, go about, you know, get your own stuff. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff. What? In so, this. so your your book is called The Edupreneur Blueprint for... Your, your Blueprint to Jumpstart and Scale Your Education Business. Nice. Awesome. Cool. I will, once I have a book uh, done... <laughs> Hopefully by uh, <laughs> mid-year. Uh, and that book, by the way, uh, is called, my title for it is Learning to Speak, mm. a, daughter's, a Daughter's Journey Toward uh, Languages, Activism, and Legacy. Nice. And so once I'm done with it, uh, then I will have more time to read. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm listening to lots of audiobooks that are memoirs because I have to read tons and tons of memoirs so that uh, I know, like, you know, the shape of a memoir oh and that was something i forgot to say like know your genre and know how your genre is written uh you don't have to follow the formulas but you definitely need to know like what's incorporated in the so like you include those elements uh so mm -hmm. the reader knows what to expect um but then i will read a prescriptive nonfiction <laughs> business book <laughs> <laughs> well thank you thank you it's, hey i'm i'm very I'm, as i said i'm very happy about it and i have send it out to people. And I have uh, two endorsements from people who are like really legit business people, well-known entities awesome. um, who've written endorsements for the book. So excited about that. Don't even, hey, their fans may come across the book there and see go. their name and go, well, let me read this. They they said something and yep, they may read it. Are important. Yeah. Words are important of uh, writing community. <laughs> you got to find your writing people to like be like, oh, will you write the thing on the back of the book so that it gets marketed? Yeah, so. Oh, all yeah. Right. It's all good. Yeah. So thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And, yeah. uh, you know, enjoy uh, the rest of your evening. Yeah. Or your day. Absolutely. Yeah, all right. I will. I'm going to go make a lunch right now. I got those pork chops marinating in my fridge. Well, I'm Muslim, so I don't, I don't eat the pork. But there you go, there you go. <laughs> I, I will have them on my end here in New York City. <laughs> All righty. All right, bye, Doctor Will. Bye. All right, people. And just got off the Zoom, so let me close this out. You know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Spotify, and Audible. I need you to subscribe and share with your network. And though I'm on all major podcast platforms, I am trying to grow on Apple Podcasts. So I need you to listen because they do check that. But I also need you to leave me some stars and some reviews because your boy's trying to be found and your boy is trying to get Oprah on the show because I want her to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Annie Tan, for coming on and sharing her story, sharing her gems, and for you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, now in season 10. As always, people, invest in you, edu, peace. <laughs>